Before we begin, this podcast talks about mental health and well-being, so take care while listening. While we hope you enjoy listening to and learning from the podcast, the discussions we have are general in nature and do not take into account your own or your workplace's specific needs and circumstances. Therefore, it is not meant to take the place of specialised advice. Welcome to the Workplace Wellbeing Natters podcast. We would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the land of the Gunai Kurnai people and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the demand for services currently being experienced by the sector and that this impacts everyone in different ways, including contributing to poor mental health and wellbeing outcomes. So we encourage you to be compassionate to yourself and others. In this episode, we're exploring suffering and compassion within the workplace context. We're looking at what suffering looks and feels like within a workplace, contributors to suffering, and what you can do to enhance compassion within your workplace, whatever your role. I'm your host, Linda, and today I have a special guest, Angela Chen, with me. Angela has 17 years' experience as a human resources specialist in the USA before she moved to Melbourne to complete studies in positive psychology. Angela is now in her last year of her PhD program, Understanding Compassion and Suffering in Contemporary Organisations. Angela, welcome. I'm so delighted that you have joined us today. Thank you, Linda. Thanks for having me. So how did you become involved in researching this area? Well, I worked in HR for 17 years in the U.S., and I saw a lot of suffering in the workplace, and sometimes I was the cause of it, because sometimes you have to like discipline employees or investigate them, or sometimes you have to tell them they're being laid off and that type of thing. So I wanted to do something to help that situation, and I came to uh, Melbourne first to do a master in applied positive psychology, so I'm very interested in positive psychology, and I felt like it was an opportunity to combine my interests in positive psychology, but also um, HR practices and management to see what can I do to create a flourishing workplace. And so the compassion came up because I was at a Buddhist meditation retreat a few years ago. And for some reason, like it just connected with me that this compassion seems to be really, really important. It's just exactly the kind of a intersection with all the stuff that I'm interested in. And so that's when I started to look into it. And then I also noticed that even though there's more and more research on compassion, there really wasn't an understanding of suffering as much that it, usually the idea is that it's just inevitable in the workplace. And I was like, I don't know. I think I want to challenge that. But let's look at see what kind of literature there is. If there's a gap, let me see what I can do from a research perspective to fill that in. And I love the way that you've chosen an area of research based on your own experience as well. Tell me about suffering then. So what is suffering within an organizational context? So you can suffer for different reasons. Like most people understand that that can come from a personal circumstance, like a loss of a loved one, or you get really ill. But when you're talking about organizational context, then it's not just necessarily that the organization may contribute to your suffering. You could just have something personal going on and then you're working in the workplace, but then the leader may not understand what you're going through and then they actually exacerbate your personal suffering. And so they actually add on top of it 
One of the um, people I, I talked to, he uh, is actually a director of a company, and his wife had passed away. And so, you know, that's the personal situation for him. And he was asked by the board to come to work within a few days of his wife passing away. And they didn't really talk to him at all or, or acknowledge that, that he even had a loss. And they just expected him to do a presentation for the board immediately. So he felt that's the kind of situation where the, the organization actually contributed to something that was already painful enough for him. And it caused him to have suffering. Like he didn't matter. Like all he was was just someone that had to do this job. But what happened to him personally didn't matter at all to the company. I want to talk about like what suffering actually means because it's a little bit different than pain, right? Because suffering is really more about a threat to your personal identity, like who you are. So if you feel like you don't matter, because I've heard from some of my interviews, I'm just a cog in the wheel. Like I don't even, I'm not even a human being. That's the threat to who you are as a human being or you're a nurse, right? And you're trying to do the best you can and your organization doesn't provide you the personal protective equipment, Right. So it makes you feel like you don't matter or you try to take care of your patients and you can't do it effectively. So who are you if you can't be a good nurse anymore, right? That's the kind of threat to your personal identity, like your sense of self. One of the things I wonder about is that the health and community services sector is often unresourced. And so I wonder if people start to feel they don't matter as much or that um, particular sector doesn't matter as much, whether it's, you know, the alcohol and drug sector compared to the acute sector, you know, all of those sorts of things. But interestingly, in some of the popular media at the moment, we hear about healthcare workers now being called heroes. So there's this kind of hero mentality, right? I actually think that's potentially harmful because we're essentially elevating someone to, you know, a hero status. And I do believe that people who work in the health and community services sector do an amazing job and go over and above. But once we start calling them heroes, I think there's a different expectation. And I'm actually wondering then if that could contribute to suffering as well. If the external world is telling these uh, professionals, you're a hero, they're actually imposing their meaning about who these people are onto them. And so if they don't believe it, they don't accept it, and it doesn't match who they think they are, that mismatch can lead to the suffering because now they feel like, well, who am I if I can't be what I'm expected to be, right? And I think I've also read a little bit too with these expectations, there could be a little bit of resentment because, okay, I'm expected to work all these long hours or I can't see my family because I have to take care of these patients or whatever because I'm supposed to be the hero. And yet maybe the organization doesn't really care about me or there's people in the public, they don't wear masks, they don't get vaccinated. And I'm making, I'm expected to make these sacrifices because I'm a hero. And yet nobody else seems to be doing that. And it's, there's that resentment and that loss of who am I? Cause I don't matter. So it sounds like the meaning we ascribe to things is really important when it comes to suffering. Did you want to say anything about that? Suffering is actually a very individual experience. It's very subjective. So you and I can experience the same pain triggering event, right? Like there could be some kind of a layoff and you might be like, oh my God, how am I going to support my family, right? And I'd be like, oh my God, I've always wanted to go pursue my dream career. This layoff is great. They're going to give me like a severance package and I'm going to be fine, right? 
the same event can actually mean something different for each person. It also depends on your background, like your culture, your life experience, your personality, all those things, the way you think, all the actions that you do, all those things come into play in terms of how you interpret something. And so we don't always know how any individual is going to respond to a pain of triggering event because it, it could be very subjective and it'd be very surprising. So it's really important to not assume anything about anybody, but actually have a conversation with them and try to ask them questions to understand how are they in particular suffering. Absolutely. And I think what you've said is so important there that we can't make assumptions about the impact of particular events on individual people. It is about that conversation and, you know, supervision for organisations within health and community services. That's a really good opportunity to have these discussions about how people are feeling about or responding to particular events in their personal life, but also within the organisational context as well because organizations can also create suffering for individuals as well, can't they? Yeah, one of the people I interviewed who's a nurse, they use wheelchairs, right, to wheel around their patients. And the problem is like the wheels were falling off. And so they're, you know, a hospital, they want to be professional and they want to be able to, you know, service their patients really well. So she was asking her supervisor, can we get new wheelchairs, right? Supervisor's like, well, we don't really have the money for that. Then one of her coworkers is like, well, let's just go do some kind of GoFundMe kind of campaign and we'll just raise money so we can just go buy some wheelchairs, you know. And then they were told, no, you can't. You have to go through the OHS protocol. You have to go through like that department or some kind of catalog or something to get the wheelchair. So like, okay, fine, let's just do that. So they got, they went through that process and the wheelchairs are still crap. They still didn't work. This wheelchairs wheels were still falling off. So she told me that she felt that, you know, they tried their best because they, they care about their job, right? They want to do right by their patients, yet they felt like they didn't matter. Whatever they did, they tried, didn't matter. They didn't care because it's always this money issue, right? And so they just stopped trying. I mean, there's so many times where she she told me in the interview, I just stopped trying because it just didn't matter anymore. It just it's not worth it. We don't even ask anymore for, for help or whatever, because we know what the answer is. The suffering of like, I, I want to be a good nurse, right? I'm competent and I want to look professional and yet I'm not allowed to because the, the, the organization is restricting me from being able to do my job, you know, to the full extent that I want to. Absolutely. And I wonder if that contributes to moral injury as well. So this sense of within organisations, you know, wanting to provide a certain level of service and not being able to do that because of constraints around resources or other organisational constraints because of their inability to provide the quality of service or care that they want to, it causes, it creates a moral injury for the worker as well. Is there a link between moral injury and suffering? I think you could say moral injury or moral harm is about the sense of dignity. And so that's why the compassion stuff comes into play, because it's really a moral harm. When you're doing something that, that causes suffering, you're, you're actually harming them. And so you got to really think about, okay, is this really the right thing to do? Because you're, you're hurting another human being. And so tell us about compassion then. We've talked about suffering. So how would you define compassion and what does that look like within an organizational setting? Well, typically compassion is about alleviating um, an individual's suffering. It's not just the way that the supervisor or the leader interacts with you um, in terms of, like you mentioned, like being 
you know, present, the, the listening, you know, the empathy, that type of thing. But it's also the structures within the organization in terms of the, the values, the norms, like the, the expected behaviors, some of the policies and procedures of the culture too, right? It's all about these symbols that create the structure for the organization to convey to uh, an employee, okay, we care about you or we don't care about you. You know, I think for me, I'm just more, I focus really particularly on practices and procedures in terms of how they get implemented, because sometimes organizations have to do something difficult, right? But it's not just what they do, it's how they do it. It's how they communicate to employees. It's how they're responding. If there's an issue, if they can, if they're willing to or able to adjust it a little bit, that's what's really important, I think, in terms of showing compassion. I read uh, somewhere that compassion has a number of components. So the first is kind of noticing the suffering, empathizing with the person. Yeah, yep. being present with their emotions, understanding their emotions, that's the empathic concern. Then there's the sense making. You have to understand, uh, make sense of the suffering and whether or not they deserve compassion or not. Sometimes, you know, someone might say, well, they, they deserve it. Whatever's happening to them, I don't really care. And then the final part is responding to the suffering and trying to do something to alleviate the suffering. Those are the sub-processes. I think Jane Dutton and Jason Kanoff were the ones that kind of came up with that. You talked about kind of cultural norms and you've also talked about practices. So when it comes to norms and values, there's the espoused values and there's the what actually happens, right, on the floor. So, you know, organisations can say that we put our workers' safety first, but during COVID, they mightn't have had adequate supplies of PPE. So people who worked in the disability field, for instance, or district nursing or within an acute setting might have felt that their physical safety was threatened because of that lack of PPE. These are where we start to see people perhaps having the sense that they don't matter and that there's a bit of a, a disconnect. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I did has um, come across some examples and some of the people I interviewed um, at the hospital, they changed the, the protocols because people walk into the hospital, they can't just go and see their loved ones or whatever that are in the hospital. They have to actually be in the lobby and they have to go through a screening process. So what they ended up doing... Uh, is that I think to facilitate that process, they had this marshal position where that individual, I think it's like a nurse or somebody, would be able to proactively ask the patients, okay, what do you need? Uh, and then go and, and get make sure things are lined up. If they need an interpreter, make sure that happens. So when they actually go see the doctor or whatever, it goes a lot faster. And so when the compassion part is like that marshalling role is really quite full on sometimes because it's very busy. And so understanding if the person's like, well, I'm really stressed out, I can't do this job right now. What would happen is that the supervisor would be like, okay, I'll find someone else to do it for you right now. It wouldn't force them to stay in that role if they felt like really tired or they just didn't feel comfortable with it. That also kind of happened with like a big IT rollout, right? You're changing a system, computer system, right? And some people are not comfortable with a new system. They don't like even using computers at all. And they went from a paper to a, you know, a computer system kind of thing. They put in these, um, th these roles of people, they're kind of like a super user. So they go around and they talk to people, okay, do you have any questions about the, the new computer system? Let me help you kind of thing. So they understand that there are people that aren't comfortable with a change in the a computer system that they provide that resource, right? that individual level. They also have, I think, a hotline you can call, but there's multiple different ways. You know, there's guidelines they can read. 
there's different things or um, support structures they put in place to help ease that transition. Yeah, so I guess it's also about being person-centered. So identifying what the person needs and how they feel best supported and then being able to provide that support in line with the person's needs and preferences. Yeah, the trick is, and that's a hard one to to do as a, a leader, is that you have to, it's like, how do you respond to someone's individual needs, but also appear fair to all the other all the other employees, because you don't want to look like you're playing favorites either. But I think that being transparent and open and honest, I think some of the leaders I've talked to in my interviews, they, they have team meetings, right, where they, where they talk about issues and they maybe log stuff and then they show the employees, here, this is how I responded to you. So everybody knows, like, if they have an issue that's raised, it'll be responded to. So everyone has equal opportunity if they have an issue that they have it addressed. So they all feel like they're being listened to, even though they may have different concerns. It's the idea is they feel like they're being paid attention to that matters. And I guess I'm just trying to think about what systems and processes would be needed in organisations that have shift work or people who work remotely. So if you think about, you know, acute hospitals, people work shifts or within residential settings, whether it's disability or youth or aged care, you know, you might be the sole person, the lone person that's on shift um, during a sleepover or those sorts of things. So whilst it seems relatively easy and straightforward in terms of being able to acknowledge and empathize and, you know, notice someone's suffering and be able to respond to that. When it comes to organizations that are quite complex, then I guess it adds that kind of extra degree of difficulty really, doesn't it, in terms of the implementation? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's going to be, the reality is sometimes organizations, they, they're going to inflict a certain amount of pain, right? If they really don't have the money to have any additional people on the night shift or something, there's only one person. I think it's the important thing is to be honest about it and explain why. I think if there's ways that um, they can maybe provide some kind of support, I don't, and this is where it's important to also ask the employee what ideas that they may have or provide different options for the employees. Okay, I, we can't do this, but maybe we can do this or this or this. So the employee feels some autonomy about the situation. They can choose something, even though it's not the ideal, but maybe it's something that the, the organization's okay with too because they've given them different feasible options. So that's where that conversation and kind of negotiation would come into play because you can't just satisfy every employee. I mean, that's just, that's not going to happen, right? But there's probably some middle ground that can be reached, but it really requires not just the conversation, but it could also sometimes require um, the leader or the manager to say, okay, maybe we can change something to have a little bit of courage and say, let's change something that doesn't work. And they may need to actually go to their senior leader to ask for that. And sometimes that's that's nerve wracking too. They'd rather just go, well, we can't do it. This is how it is. So it really depends on the situation. So it sounds like involving the person in identifying potential solutions and also giving them some autonomy over that process is really important as well. Yeah, because I think when suffering is really about the loss of autonomy, the best thing you can do is try to figure out how to um, get them some sense of autonomy over the situation so they can make sense of it in a way that's not no longer suffering nearly as much as before for them. 
And so that can be something that co-workers can do for other co-workers as well as managers to employees as well. So it's something that each and every one of us can contribute to compassion or having a compassionate response within the workplace. Yeah. And sometimes there's nothing you can do for them because it's an inevitable pain. So it's compassionate silence where you allow them the space to just process their suffering Um, Sometimes if it's the pain that is inevitable, the organization has to do it. Sometimes it's about um, reframing the situation to create new meaning as well so that the person who's suffering can think about it. Okay, maybe there's another way I can look at it that, that might actually help me, right? So I can regain a sense of autonomy. So it's not always about eliminating the pain. It's sometimes it's about just working with what's going on, just being present with somebody. It was just interesting to me. I was talking to, um, she's a partner in a law firm. So she's a leader. And she was just saying that one of her um, young junior attorneys was like, they didn't have a lot of work to do because they just don't have the experience. And so they were really worried that about their career because if they don't have an experience in that learning, then what kind of attorney are they going to be in the future? So she was trying to arrange for them to get secondments where they would work in maybe in a different department or something to still get experience. And initially the young attorneys were like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, how's that going to help me? Right. Or, you know, I just want to stay with my team. And she's like, well, just look at a different way. You're going to learn new skills. It's going to help you down the road. Right. So that's the reframing that she did. And they tried it. And then she said a couple of them came back and they actually start, saw the value in that, in, in the secondments. So they weren't able to do what they wanted to do originally, which is like work in that department, but they were able to still get experiences they saw valuable later on. So I think it's really important to, when we talk about meaning, to really focus on what kind of meaning can you have, either if you're helping your coworker, like maybe help them think about things in a different way that can help them regain a sense of self. As a leader as well, you could do that. As we talked about too, is that you don't just tell them what they think or what meaning that they need to have. It has to come from that, that suffering individual. They need to actually have that sense of agency and control over that meaning. One example is new graduates. So you might have graduates within the primary care sector, so allied health or even um, graduating doctors that perhaps they feel that the organisations don't actually have enough time to train them or expose them different experiences so that they can develop, you know, their sense of practice wisdom and all of that sort of thing. So that would be, uh, you know, an equivalent type example within health and community services. I'm just going to say one one other thing, because you're talking about um, the, you know, the supervision and and talking to employees. You said it could be a performance development potential, like within that conversation or just a performance review. Using that as an opportunity to build a, a good, high-quality connection with your employee is important because if they're suffering and you're trying to help them create new meaning that might help them, they'll be more receptive to your ideas if you have a good relationship. Otherwise, they're just going to ignore you. So that's why the relationships and having good ones is such a key component, I think, to helping people through the suffering experience. And when we were talking earlier on, you were talking about trust being really important. And I think that's, you know, probably what's really important here as well is that sense of, you know, trust between the individuals, irrespective of their roles. The, the connection itself being strong enough to withstand kind of the ups and downs, that there's a little bit of, I um, can't remember exactly the term of, of it, but it's it's enough to be able to accommodate um, 
the changes because there's there's the trust has already been built to create a good bond. When you have a you know relate to someone in the workplace, it's going to be times where you don't always get along or or agree with each other. But if you have a sense of understanding of each other, you know each other, you're going to be able to have more grace or forgiveness towards the other person if they wronged you. I remember one of the interviews that I had. Because of COVID, I guess, they were having these check-in meetings between the supervisor and the employees, and they got to know the employees, like what's really going on in their personal lives, and they knew them more than just as an employee. What happened is that when the supervisor screwed up, right, the employee was, was more likely to go, oh, it's not a big deal. Like they won't take it as a personal friend. They won't interpret that pain of a triggering event as something that's suffering, like there's something wrong with me or they don't care about me. They just let that go because they they had so many other experiences of, of positive like connections with their their supervisor that that it, it just it's just different. So I just like, well, that's a really good thing to think about, about why good relationship is important, because it really does shape how you interpret all the things that happen with your supervisor or vice versa, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good point. What practical strategies would you give managers, employees in workplaces in terms of being more compassionate? So both kind of on the individual uh, level when it comes to those relationships, as well as, you know, some of those structures or norms or routines within organizations that we spoke about as well. One of the things that I would say um, for leaders is that be aware of your own suffering and what's going on in the organization that you might think could pose a threat to your own identity. I think sometimes what I've seen with, at least in like in the business world, the managers, you know, rightly so, they want to perform well, they want to be seen as competent, they want so they can get a raise or a promotion or something like that. And so if they do something that goes against what is expected of them, then they worry that, okay, I'm not going to get that whatever raise or promotion or, or I'm going to lose my job they won't have the courage to change things because they just want to stick to whatever they're being expected to do. So I think if a leader is more present with their own suffering and what they see as a threat to themselves, there's maybe an opportunity for them to change that, right? To create a different meaning. Like, is that really a threat to me? I think on the, on the flip side, it's important for employees to, to understand that leaders do suffer. It's a hard job to be a leader, a manager, a supervisor. You're caught in all these different things you're expected to do all, you know, it's to satisfy the, man, the senior leadership as well as the employees and all this other stuff. So I think it's important to, um, to be aware of that. It's a hard place to work if you um, have such little forgiveness and such high expectations of, of people that are really just human beings. Right. So we're trying to figure out how do you get to the point where you have an understanding of each other, right? That everybody suffers, right? Whether you're a leader or you're not. And that that's what's our commonality or shared humanity. Um, another thing that I would say is mindfulness is being present with your thoughts. Because this interpretation we're talking about, like a pain trigger event, and you interpret it in such a way that it's threatening to your sense of self. That sometimes if you're mindful and you're present with those thoughts, you can maybe detach from that and say, not automatically identify or automatically think that way and go, let's just take a step back. Is that really what's going on? Maybe there's another way of looking at this, another meaning that might be useful for me. Or you talk to somebody else, right? Okay, what do you think about this? Maybe maybe I'm, I need to see a different way, right? So that kind of helps you too, um, to kind of process what's going on that, that's creating your suffering. I think we already talked about the, 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 
having good connections with each other, understanding each other. Um, I mean, that's really, that's not rocket science, right? So, but it's, it's, it's really about, if you understand someone and how they, they may suffer, if you understand them, you may actually anticipate how they may suffer, which is kind of important. And we talked about the reframing, it may help facilitate reframing as well, because they trust you to, uh, to give them suggestions on how to think about things differently. Thank you so much for sharing your insights into suffering and compassion within organizations with us today. I know I've certainly taken away a lot from our discussion and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you so much for being a guest on Workplace Wellbeing Thank Matters. you, Linda, for having me. I actually really enjoyed it, having a conversation with you. And I, I hope that your listeners find some of our discussion um, will be like useful to them in some way. So I'm sure they will. Thank you so much. Okay. We've covered a lot as usual today. So let's do a quick recap of our natterings. Firstly, we talked about suffering in an organizational context. So we differentiated between pain and suffering and noted that suffering is different for each person. We can't make assumptions about another person's reactions and responses to a pain-triggering event. It's really about having that conversation. And, of course, critical to having that conversation is having a good relationship or a high-quality connection that's built on trust and transparency. We also identified that our language and actions, either intentionally or unintentionally, can add to others' suffering. So we explored the topic of compassion and how having a caring, compassionate response can alleviate suffering. So based on that good relationship or high quality connection, having a bond to help people through the suffering experience and a bond that can really accommodate those ups and downs that are a natural part of relationships. Also helping people to reframe their experience and create new meaning from the pain triggering situation or event can assist in alleviating suffering. Acknowledging that everyone suffers, so irrespective of your role in the organization, and as a leader, being aware of your own suffering and what is happening in the workplace that could contribute to that. Also being mindful, so being present with your thoughts and having the ability to just take a step back and reinterpret the situation can be helpful in having a compassionate response and alleviating suffering as well. So we have so loved connecting with you and sharing our insights into suffering and compassion. In our show notes, we will have the link to the article that Angela recently co-authored on suffering and compassion in organizations. And of course, any other links that may support your journey towards workplace wellbeing. As always, we want to know what you think, have been inspired by, any questions you would like answered or contributions you would like to make to the podcast. So leave a review or contact us via matters at workplacewellbeingnatters.com.au. If you would like to explore how we can help you on your journey, submit a case study or a comment for us to include in our podcast. We look forward to next time. Thanks for joining us and bye for now.